As human beings, we wrestle with all kinds of existential questions. We ask things like, who am I? Who should I become? And then how do I become what I'm becoming? How, how do I go about that process? And our world has a lot of different answers to those questions. And I'm particularly interested today in a particular way that I'm hearing our culture answer that question. And I found an example of this in my daughter's reading assignment one time. This was about a few months back. And I was reading it, and I realized in, in this story is an example of what I'm going to go on and call expressive individualism. Well, hang on to that. It's a big term. We're going to come back and unpack it. But here's a story between a father and a daughter, and the daughter's asking her dad, what should I do for my vocation? So listen as this exchange happens. She asks, and how do you know which are the things you should try for? Well, this is a hard question for so early in the morning. Dad said, hmm. I guess it's different for every person. You have to know yourself what you can do. Can't someone just tell me, I said. It's too hard to figure out. No one can tell you, Dad said. Only you can decide. Because only you know who you are. You know who I am, I said, and, and Mom too. You're my parents. We are your parents, Dad said. But that doesn't mean we truly know you. A couple things that the dad does well here. First of all, he's humble and realizes he doesn't know his daughter exhaustively. Secondly, he realizes his daughter has to ultimately own the decision that she makes regarding her life's choices. But there's something there that he sells out pretty quickly, and that's being able to influence and inform his daughter about who she is. Why couldn't he take the vast knowledge that he has of how the world works and his least partial knowledge of who she is and inform her about what options might better suit her than others? Instead, he leaves her saying, only you really know who you are. She's left alone to figure out who she is and what she's supposed to become in the world. She's left alone. Well, this example here is a paradigm example of expressive individualism. Expressive individualism is simply this. Take the first term, expressive. I mean, the whole, the whole point to life is to express who you are. It's to dig down, to identify those desires, those things that make you unique, and then show them to the world. You've heard this statement, I'm sure, be true to yourself, right? Well, that's kind of the common lingo, and that's really the ethic of this worldview that says the whole point of your life is to be true to you. Don't let anybody else stifle that. Then you add the second term, and it's individualism, the idea that I'm really a lone individual by myself. That's why a father can't guide his daughter because she is alone in her world. The father from the outside cannot actually speak into that life. And so she must walk it alone. Individualism cuts us off from key relationships, even parental relationships. It says we are radically alone in the world. I like how Yuval Levin puts it. He describes expressive individualism this way. It suggests not only a desire to pursue one's own path, but also a yearning for fulfillment through the definition and articulation of one's identity. It is a drive both to be more like whatever you already are and also to live in society by fully asserting who you are. Now, every worldview has a problem it identifies and then a solution to that problem. 
The problem here is this yearning for fulfillment. And as humans, we have this. We have a desire to be fulfilled, to be complete, to be whole. But then the solution side is this, to define yourself, articulate who you are, and then fully assert who you are. The answer is to go on the offensive, to assert. And that's why a father can't shepherd his daughter, because if he were to stifle that in any way, he would fail to help her assert who she is. So expressive individualism has become a part of the world in which we live. If, if you just pay attention, and I encourage you this week to pay attention to the lyrics you hear, to the movies you watch, to things your friends say, and actually, I, I'm, I'm going to do this. The first person who gives me a snippet of where they see expressive individualism this week, you're going to get a prize. Just You can't do it during a sermon, all right? So no Googling while we're talking here together. But, but just listen to some lyrics that we heard last night. We were listening to the soundtrack to The Greatest Showman. And I like the movie for the way it affirms family and the value of individual people, even the ones that society rejects. But it does so not from the image of God, but from the vantage point of expressive individualism. Here's some lyrics. It's up to you and it's up to me. No one can say what we get to be. That's expression. That's self-assertion. I make no apologies. This is me. Again, the self-assertion. I'm marching to the beat I drum. It's about me and what I want to do. Or we can live in a world we design. Hmm, think about that. Can we really design the world to fit our desires? But that's what expressive individualism would have us say. So in our time together, I want to do a couple of things. We've, we've seen a little bit about what it is. I want to unpack how we got here, and then what does the Bible have to say in response to it? And let's think about how, how we got here, and that's a, that's a long story. Sometimes when we th- talk about cultural issues, we often think, well, they just kind of came around last year or maybe a decade ago. But in all honesty, these have, these have long historical roots in the Western tradition. It did not just happen overnight. These have been incubating in our culture for a long time. So I'm going to look at three thinkers that really laid some of the groundwork for how we got here. And again, this is like the snapshot version of history. If you want a longer picture, I suggest picking up something from Charles Taylor on this. Um, he's got a couple good books, and I can guide you in that regard. But they are very dense. I'll just warn you on that. So one of the figures that features prominently is this guy, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. I love the French names of Jean-Jacques. wish we had that guttural sense there. But Jean-Jacques Rousseau did something interesting. So in the Christian tradition, we have this idea that God creates the first humans good and pure. And then there's a fall. And that happens pretty early on. And that, that fall impacts all of us. That in some way, we are mired in that same sin and affected by it. And what Rousseau does is he wants to hang on to this idea that humans are good, but expand it. And so what he does, he puts the fall at a completely different point in time. For him, the fall happens not back really close to the Garden of Eden. Rather, it happens when we organize society, when we create a government. That's when the corrupting forces enter into humanity. So think about that for a little bit. What would be the solution in that worldview? What would be this? Get rid of society. Get rid of those who would tell me I'm supposed to do something else. So Rousseau relocates the fall to a different point in time to the creation of human government and society. He also does this. He puts the 
the notion of our individual goodness now at war with society around us. Because to get along with other people, we have to actually suppress or say no to some of our desires. You might have a burning desire to drive on the left side of the road. I've never had that, but let's just say you do. You might try it on a dark night out in front of your house, but you're not going to try it out in McKnight. Why? Because everybody else out there thinks the right side of the road is the right side, and so you're going to go head on into a collision. And so what happens is we suppress some of our desires to get along with other people. And for Rousseau, this is where you begin the subversion of some of your desires. Just to get along with other people, you say no to some things. Notice this quote from his book on education. It speaks to this longing that Levin talked about earlier. He says, I long for the time when freed from the fetters of the body, I shall be myself at one with myself, no longer torn in two. That's his current state. He's torn in two between the person he needs to be on the outside and the person he longs to be on the inside, when I myself shall suffice for my own happiness. And so his moment of liberation now gets moved to this place where I can be emancipated from these expectations of others and that I will count for my own happiness. Now think about individual expressivism. I'm sorry, expressive individualism, which says... I just need to be liberated, and then I can be happy. This traces back here to Rousseau. The next person I just want to talk about briefly is Jean-Paul Sartre. He was an atheist philosopher, again, another Frenchman, and don't worry, we're not going to spend the rest of the day in a French cafe. But he, he had this notion, and, and he was, I believe, right on this implication that if you don't believe in God, you give up any idea of humans having a purpose. And so if there's no purpose... And we're here, guess what? We have to think about, what are we here for? And for him, the essence of humanity, the, the chief purpose, is that we're supposed to be free. That you're supposed to act freely in whatever you do. And so any time that you surrender freedom to go along with, say, your parents' expectations, society's expectation, you're committing this thing he calls bad faith. So it's interesting. For him, being an atheist, bad faith is not disbelieving in God, it's actually failing to live into your freedom to choose as you would wish. It's submitting yourself to society or someone else's expectations. So that's thinker number two. The last one I'm going to talk about here is Sigmund Freud. This is not an interesting picture. It's not very flattering. I'm not sure I want to sit down and tell him all my deepest, darkest secrets. It looks kind of mean. But, but Freud, I, I want to pull him out for, for one reason, is that he identified the mind as having three different stages or three different parts. There was the conscious mind, the things that you were thinking about right now. There was the pre-conscious mind, the things that you could call to memory. So for instance, maybe saying Freud brought to memory your quirky psychology professor from college. So you're thinking about that person right now. Well, that was, that's going from the pre-conscious into the conscious mind. But there was also this third category, the unconscious. And that was the part of, of repressed ideas, memories, all those things that, that your mind had done to save itself in many ways. But it was this subterranean part of your mind that you can't access. You can't just will it into consciousness. And he thought sometimes this emerged from dreams. But what you get from Freud is this idea that there is this depth that we all have. That you can spend a lifetime trying to plunge into that, trying to understand and articulate it. So you have this idea from Freud that there is this... this incredible depth to each one of us that we don't even understand fully. And so how could someone else ever possibly understand it? 
first of all, if we don't even understand it. And then you pull this together. So you've got this idea of this, this human depth that we have from Freud. Then you put in Rousseau. And Rousseau says when you look into your heart, what are you going to find down there? You're going to find something noble and good. And then you have Rousseau and Sartre working together. And what do they say? That the human ethic is, is to ultimately live into whatever you find in there. You pull these together, and guess what? You're living in expressive individualism. You're living in a place where the chief end of humankind is to identify what's down inside and then live it out and don't care about anybody else. Whatever they think is actually probably a liability for your self-expression. Now, it's easy for us to sit here and say, well, that's out there. Aren't we in the church? Like, we're preserved from some of this stuff. Barna did a study a couple of years ago called the State of Discipleship Study. And here's what they found regarding practicing Christians. And these are people who come to church at least somewhat frequently. They invest in their faith. They want to learn. They identify as Christians. Notice what this says. 91% of practicing Christians agreed that you have to be true to yourself. We're going to come back to that. We have some, some, some unpacking to do on that one. But 91% of practicing Christians said, yes, I agree with that statement. 76% said the best way to find yourself is to look within yourself. Plunge into that depth inside. And then 66% of practicing Christians agreed the highest goal in life is to enjoy it as much as possible. My friends, this is the air that we breathe. This is the water in which we swim. This is our culture. And so it's not surprising to me that it would also impact us. So today I want to move now to looking at what does Scripture have to say to these different claims, these different ideas that are part of individual expressive... Sorry, I messed that up again. Expressive individualism. What does Scripture have to say? And we're going to see three things. First of all, we're going to see that what lies within is not as good as Rousseau would have us believe. We have problems that lie within, and we need to do business with that. Second, that your story is important because it's a part of God's bigger story. And finally, that you were made for community, not isolation. So let's dig into that, and we're going to work through the book of Ephesians, pulling you know, a couple key passages together that would help us understand some of these claims I'm going to try to make today from Scripture. So from someone like Rousseau and others, we would have this idea in our culture that when we look into our hearts, we're going to find something really nice. I'm here to tell you, when, we, when you look at Scripture, you get a much more sobering picture that what lies within is not purely good. You might find some good ideas here and there, but Scripture warns us about affirming all that lies within us. Because apart from Christ... Our state is not a good state. It's actually a very poor state. Let, let me read Paul and let him explain where we are. And so he's writing to the Ephesians. He's telling them what they were before they came to Christ. And here's what he says. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. What Paul says here is that before Christ, 
the desires that are at work in our hearts are not good. That when, you, when you plunge down into it, what do you find? And verse 3 pulls us out. It says, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following the desires of its thoughts. Brothers and sisters, our hearts, if we're honest, have desires that are not in alignment with God's will for the human race. We, first of all, don't want God in it. And in fact, I would say this about expressive individualism. It is essentially saying, God, take a hike. The very first snapshot we get of sin in the Bible is of Adam and Eve in a garden, the serpent coming along saying, do you want to be like God? Then here's the fruit. You can know good and evil. What expressive individualism does is it enthrones you and me as the kings and queens of our lives, saying there is no higher authority. You get to be it, and that's why it's pretty attractive to some. But is it honest? I don't think it's honest. And it fails to take note that what's going on inside is actually something problematic, that there is sin there, there's desires. And so it talks about there's the cravings of the flesh, but there's also the, these thoughts. So the cravings of the flesh which would just be our inordinate physical desires. This would include gluttony, consuming more than what we're supposed to, the inordinate sexual desires. Then there's also the desires of the mind that he talks about here. Things like jealousy, rage, anger, all those things, saying these are part of who we are. And Paul calls them on the carpet and says, look, these are sinful. These mark us out. What do they mark us out as? He says, you are dead in your transgressions. You're lifeless. And this death speaks about our powerlessness, but also about our severance from God. This cut off our own life from the God of life. And so we lie dead without his help. And so what happens? We fall in the ways of this world. We're under the kingdom of the air, the spirit at work. We've given ourselves over to a different Lord. And expressive individualism does that. It gives us over to our sin. And what it actually does is it's going to affirm all the desires within. The, the only kind of pushback I hear most expressive individualists making is, well, as long as it doesn't harm somebody else. But even, even that's becoming gray. What action really harms somebody else? And it, what it ends up doing is affirming so many different desires that do not truly love other people. And so the Bible would remind us that when we look inside, we see a bad-looking picture. We don't see this beautiful, rosy picture that Rousseau painted. No, we see something ugly. And I'll just say this, you know, to argue on behalf of, of Scripture here. Rousseau's idea is that if you would abscond from society, you would become this noble person. If you were born without society around, you would be pure, innocent, and good. And do you know what people find when they leave society? Like if they join a monastery, they find themselves. So you might think reducing other human contact would, would help you be better. You actually find more of yourself, because guess what? All those desires are now heightened. <laughs> They're now present. And so these are the truth about who we are apart from Christ. Now it doesn't end there. So we've seen that apart from Christ, what lies within is, is not beautiful at all. It's ugly. And at the end of, of the verse 3, it says this, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. It puts us out on the path towards God's judgment. This is a horrible place to be. But that's not the end of the story. So the second thing we're going to see, we've just seen that what lies within is, is, is not good. It needs redemption. The second thing we're going to see is that you are important, not as the, as the main character in God's story, but rather as a, a 
part of God's bigger story. We're going to see that in the first chapter here of Ephesians chapter 1. What expressive individualism does is it makes our life chiefly about us. And we quickly wrap God into being a supporting actor. He might be the best supporting actor, but he's only a supporting actor. Scripture gives us a bigger story, a better story. It starts with God in the garden, and it ends with God bringing the new heavens and the new earth. And somewhere in that bigger story, he wraps our stories up into it. And it's a fabulous story, but we need to find our place within that story. So here's Ephesians chapter 1. And Paul starts off just praising God for what he has done. And notice what he says. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. God is not stingy. He blesses his people with everything. And what are those blessings? He goes on, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. What does God give us? We just read in chapter 2 about what we are apart from Christ, and that is we're dead, deserving of wrath, full of our own desires, our own corruption. And now what does God say about us? He says we're holy and blameless. He's wiped the slate clean. That's an incredible thing, to go from being someone who has despicable desires to someone who is now being declared to be holy before God who sees all things. But notice also the story goes back before the world began, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world. See, this is a, a bigger story that we're a part of. One of the things that expressive individualism does is it leaves us longing for something bigger than us. Because you might live your entire life all about you. You know, do the Frank Sinatra thing, like I did it my way. You know what's going to happen? At some point in your life, you're going to start losing capacity. You're not going to be able to fully assert your identity into the world. In fact, the world's going to come and, and eventually take your life. We're going to die. And if you live life all about you, guess what? At the end of life, all that meaning, all that purpose that you created, all the identity you've asserted, suddenly goes up in smoke. It's gone. And it leaves us longing for something bigger, something that was going to transcend our lives. And the only story I know that can do that is a story where God sends his son, planned this before the creation of the world, chose you and says, I want you to be my son, my daughter, holy and blameless before me. And so one of these yearnings, that even though expressive individualism is about this yearning for fulfillment, it can't answer this longing for something bigger. The gospel story does that for us. Then Paul goes on, he says, In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. So here we, we've gone from being people headed towards wrath, justly deserving God's judgment. Now we're adopted into his family, full children of God himself, full heirs. Why? In accordance with his pleasure and will. And notice this, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. So God wants us to turn around and say, look at that. Look at what God has done. He's called us into his family, called us holy, called us blameless, so he can one day receive the praise and the glory that, are, that is due him. Have you ever walked into a high school that you've never been to before, and 
taking a look at the trophy wall. They always, always have these, these trophies, and you can kind of tell when they had strong athletes and strong coaches, because they'll have a couple years in succession where they got the trophies, like, yeah, I got the championship. It's always fun for me to just kind of go and take a look at the, the different trophies. And I, I imagine heaven's going to be something like this, where God might be introducing us and saying, oh, you see that person over there? Yeah, that person cheated on their taxes all the time. That person, that person lied all the time. That person murdered somebody. But you know what I made them? I made them a trophy of my grace, and look, they're holy and they're blameless. He's going to take all those evil things that we have done, and he's atoned for them, as we're going to see in a few verses. He has given us forgiveness from all those things. Here's the next couple of verses. Paul goes on to say this, In him we have redemption through his blood. This reminds us that standing before God holy and blameless is not just because I think good about myself. It's because God has paid a price that was costly to him. Redemption is the act of, of paying. And a good illustration that I'm sure you're well aware of is, is when Aslan, in behalf of a son of Adam, says, I will die on his behalf. He, he redeems the son of Adam through his own death. And Paul says here, through his blood, he... he pays the price. And what happens as a result of that, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. So again, God is just lavishing forgiveness on his people. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. See, God's got a bigger story that he's weaving together. What expressive individualism does, it says your story alone matters. One of them suggests is this. In the Christian story, our story still matters. But it matters not because we are the key actor in this story, but because we are a supported actor by the main actor, God himself. And what he does is he weaves our little stories into a bigger story to showcase his glory and grace. I'm going to illustrate it this way. My, my grandmother did embroidery. She, she's since had cognitive decline. I don't think she can do this kind of work anymore. But this is a tablecloth, and it's very, very intricate. Now, when you, when, you, when you watch her make these kinds of things, when she first takes those first little threads through, you're kind of like, yeah, what, what's this building to? What, what's the point of that little thread? But each one of those little threads does something important, because when, when it's put together, it creates this beautiful, beautiful picture Flowers emerge. Our lives are like those little threads. We're being woven into a bigger picture, and that bigger picture is going to say, wow, isn't God amazing? We don't see it all here. On the back, it's not quite as beautiful either. Looks like a tangled mess on this side. But you know what? God's going to someday in heaven unfurl his plan, and we're going to stand there in amazement and say, wow, praise that grace. That is awesome. One of the reasons why expressive individualism is so attractive to people is because it makes life about me. And we want to matter, don't we? We want to think that we're something important. And it can deliver that in a small way. But I think it sells the farm. Because you don't matter eternally. You don't matter to a bigger story. And when we ultimately die, we lose whatever cool little stitch we have made with our lives, it's gone. And so only in God's bigger story does our individual life take up a bigger meaning, a bigger 
broadcasting of God's own glory and grace in our lives. And so we've seen a couple things so far. We've seen that, one, what lies within us is, is not good. There's sin that needs to be redeemed, and it's been redeemed in the cross of Christ. Two, we've seen that our story is important, but it's important in the light of God's bigger story of what he's doing in the world. And third, we are made for community, not for isolation. So remember that opening story where the father said, well, sorry, daughter, you're on your own. Paul, as he articulates the Christian life, and as we live it together, it's about living in community with each other. We are not islands unto ourselves. We are made to live and pursue together the image of Christ. So I'm going to point here to, oh, sorry, there was an embroidery right there. To these verses right here, we're going to read it together, and then we'll unpack them. So he says this in chapter 4, verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for the works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up. And so I just want to pause right there and say what, what's happening is, is Paul's talking about God giving gifted people to do the work of service. That's, that's ministry. We often think of the ministry as the professionals, but here Paul is saying they're given to cultivate the ministry in others. What are we supposed to do? So that the body of Christ may be built up, verse 13, until we all reach the unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And this is really the goal. The goal of our life together in the church is that we would be on this trajectory together to pursue the image of Christ, that we would be the fullness of Christ. That's what God wants of us. He's what he's called us to. That's what we need to be doing together. What happens when the expressive individualist shows up at church is they want church to be self-affirming. They want the worship music to inspire them to go out and live their lives. They want the sermons to reaffirm what they already think and not challenge them to think about how does Christ need to be formed in me today. What can easily happen is our expressive individualism can, can colonize our Christianity. What Paul is calling us to here is, no, no, no. We are bent on the figure of Christ. and He's going to call us to account. We want to look and be like him. What will this maturity protect us from? Verse 14, then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. There's been a lot of deceitful scheming in our world. And part of our work together as Christians is to hold each other back from those things. How are we supposed to do this? Paul outlines this right here. Instead, Speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head. That is Christ. Again, the target here is Christ. In case we missed that, we want to become like Christ. That's the target. Now, how do we do that? He says here, by speaking the truth in love. I'm going to show you something here from, that I'm taking from some psychologists. It's called the Johari Window. And this breaks down the different kinds of knowledge about ourselves. So on the top left-hand side, uh, my pointer's not showing up very well. Top left-hand side is the area that we're open about. These are the things people know about us and we know about ourselves. The stories we share. Come down on the bottom left-hand side. These are the things that are not known to others, but we know them. 
These are the, the hidden stories, the, the parts of us when we look inside and we're like, I don't like that, I'm not going to talk about it. That's the hidden self that we know but no one else does. Now, notice this. On the bottom right, there is a part of you that's not known to yourself and not known to others. But look at the top right-hand side. This is what is known to others but not known to yourself. And if you look at the, the label there, it's called blind spot. Because guess what? There's part of you that you don't see. You probably don't want to see it. And the only way for you to really understand that part of you is actually to go ask somebody else for feedback. You can't just sit and think, hmm, do I do this, do I not? You, you're going to need feedback from other people. And so we need to do this truth speaking to each other because we need to actually say, hey, do you know when you... Whenever I tell a joke, you just kind of go deadpan. What, what's, the, what's that about? Or every time I, I talk to you, you get enraged about this topic. What, tell me the history about this. People on their own often want to keep blind spots blind. And that's why we need to do it with love. I'll be honest, when people talk about my blind spots, I'm most likely to receive it when they come, and I know that they're coming out of love. They're coming to attack the natural human response is, whew, shields up, we'll stand the barrage, okay, whew, we're good. We protect ourselves. But when I know someone loves me and they're coming to say, look, I want the best for you, I'm more likely to say, you know what, let me think about that. Let me consider that. I know you want what's good for me. You're not just coming to attack me. The second reason why you need to gird yourself up with love is this. When you go into someone's blind spots, they're not going to be like, oh, you know what? I'm so glad you brought that to my attention. Yes, please tell me more. I want to hear all about my faults. My spiritual director says, when you go into a blind spot, be prepared for the dragon. You might get your head bit off. Because people want to protect that area. They do not want to see the dark sides of their underbelly. And that's why we need to do it in love, because you need to withstand that barrage. You need to say, I really am doing it for your good. And believe it is for, their, for your good. Because you can easily degenerate back into attack, defend. And once you're, once you're there, it's not productive. So you need to stay the course. You need to stay with loving and speaking the truth. Now I want to go back to our opening story where the, where the father sitting with the daughter and saying, you just must, only you know yourself. I'm just going to say, really? Look at, look at this. If there was a top right-hand quadrant, there's part of that daughter's life that I, I imagine the parents are clued into. I'm not saying they have exhaustive knowledge. But there's a place where the parents have some insight. Like, hey, daughter, I see these things. You might not want to admit them about yourself, but I know these are true about you. I know my parents, our, our parents have spoken things to us and said, hey, do you know about this? And it's like, well, whoa. And then after time, it's like, you know what? That's a good point. I need to take that in. And so the parent in the opening story surrenders far too quickly his role of actually being able to help his daughter walk into some of her blind spots and say, hey, you don't know about this part of the world yet? I'm going to inform you. Are this part of your soul? Let me clue you in how it's going to affect you or how you might better shift your vocation to match up with what's true about you. So we need each other if we're going to grow into the image of Christ because otherwise our blind spots will sabotage anything else we're doing. So we want to grow. We want to grow into our understanding of who we are and bringing that to the light and the parts that need to be confessed need to be confessed. 
bring those into the open so Christ can be formed in us. So let's go back to the last verse here, verse 16. It's talking about Christ here in verse 16. It says, from him, the whole body joined and held together. So, th- so think about this. Like our own bodies hold together. We need each part of the body. Held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love. We're doing this with each other. We're doing this together. We need to be pursuing growth together. And where are we going? As each part does its work, we're building each other up into the body of Christ. So we've seen three things that Scripture would warn us about expressive individualism. We've seen that when you look within, you're not going to find a beautiful picture. You're going to find that it's not all good. There's sin there that needs to be confessed. We've, we've seen that your story matters because it's an important part of God's bigger story. And finally, that we need to work this out, this pursuit of maturity in Christ as a community, not as isolated individuals. Now, what about some of, the, some of the, the phrases that we hear in our world? What about being true to yourself? Should you be true to yourself? You should be true to yourself in the places where the Spirit's been at work transforming you into the image of Christ. Be true to those. But the parts of you that have desires that are not aligned with God's will, those need to be brought to the light. You need to be true about them not truly live into them. So they need to come to the light, be confessed to God and to the other people that have been harmed by them. And then repent it of. Say, I want to pursue, I want to put on Christ in a way that my world will know that he is my Lord and he's my Savior. What about looking within to find yourself? Well, that, that might go okay on the days where things go well for you. You might find your ideal self and be like, oh yeah, I like this person. But give it a week, give it a month, give it an hour. You might be horrified at the person you could become, at what lies within. And then where are you stuck? If if the main place of finding yourself is to look within, that's a scary day when you're at your worst. Because there's no redemption from that place. Because the truth is staring you back in the face. And then what? You just keep reasserting that? The ugliness upon the world? I hope not. So we need a word from outside of us. We need a word that's going to call us something else. Because I know my own sinfulness. I know what scripture says of us. So I know it's also true of other people. We need a word from outside, not just what lies within. And so we need a word like Ephesians 3, I'm sorry, 1, 3 to 10. And I will say, God says you are holy and beloved. You are blameless. You are my children. You've gone from being children of wrath to being now my full sons and daughters. We need a word from outside of us. That word comes from God. And he invites you wherever you are. Maybe today you don't trust in Christ. You, you've perhaps lived a life of expressive individualism, thinking it's great to be my own God. But you know what? God calls us into the light to say, Here's who you really are, but you know what? Here's who you could become through repentance and faith. You can become my children. He welcomes us all in. May we pursue becoming mature in Christ together. That is our call, and that is the invitation that Christ extends to us. Let's pray. Father, you have been overly gracious abundantly merciful to us. 
nor our own hearts can testify against us to the sin that lies within. Lord, help us hear your word over all the internal voices. May we look not to what lies within, but to you, to your justifying word that declares us holy and guiltless before you. In Jesus' name, amen.